0: This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at tfakc or on Instagram at tfakc. <laughs>
1: Many schools include hair as part of their dress code, and that's gotten some black students in trouble. Our teachers discuss whether dress codes can be racist. Plus, Betsy DeVos has been in the news again. Do our teachers consider themselves the status quo? Finally, confidence in police is up overall in America, but dropping among certain groups like Latinos and young people. What's it like to teach about law enforcement in this age of police shootings and protests? Those topics, plus we ask... What undercovered historic event or figure do you want to see a movie made about? On this episode of The No Wrong Answers Podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist and I'm joined as always by a group of hard-working teachers who are ready to
0: talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, first time I've seen you this summer. What do you teach? Trying not to think about teaching, but uh, <laughs> I teach social studies at a high school. Because you just got done with summer school. Yeah, not that long ago, and and the school year is rapidly approaching. And now you're going back.
1: Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach?
2: I teach students at the alternative school.
1: And Bakari Ukuu, what do you teach? Vice principal at middle school. Oh, that's right. You are now an administrator. I am on the other side. <laughs> well, you'll not be able to. Not the other side.
2: We got to have allies. Yes. yes.
1: We yeah. got our eye on you. To bring that perspective to bear as we move forward. Well, all three of them are public school teachers and now administrators in the Kansas City metro area. Let's get to it. Let's first talk about dress codes and hair, specifically the hair of black children, black girls especially, and how it is playing a role in recent battles over school dress codes. NPR last week reported on the case of Maya and Deanna Cook, twin 16-year-old girls who attend Mystic Valley Regional Charter School near Boston earlier this spring, as it was reported then. The girls convinced their parents to let them get braided hair extensions, but when they went to school with the extensions, Maya and Deanna were pulled out of class, given infractions for violating the school's dress code. They were told by school officials the extensions were too distracting. The girls were asked to take them out. They refused. Maya and Deanna were then punished, given detention, barred from participating in extracurricular activities, suspended from the school's upcoming prom. Maya and Deanna's parents, Colleen and Aaron Cook, who we should note are white, the girls are adopted. The parents protested. According to the NPR report, the Cooks went so far as to show school administrators pictures in the school yearbook of white children with braids, extensions, dye jobs, who had not been disciplined before. Administrators reportedly responded that those hairstyles were not as noticeable and therefore not as distracting. After the Cooks went to the media, they brought in groups like the NAACP and the Anti-Defamation League. There was a social media outcry, and even the Massachusetts Attorney General got involved scolding Mystic Valley for punishing the Cook girls. The school eventually did relent, giving the girls their privileges back and also announcing that enforcement of the dress code would cease until the end of this past school year, which ended in May. But school officials also defended their dress code in a statement saying, in part, the prohibition on hair extensions was in place because extensions can be expensive and could be a visible marker of socioeconomic difference among students. And we don't want that. Those are some of the facts of this story, but there are broader issues that we want to get into now. Research shows that in schools nationwide, black children are suspended at higher rates than whites, and at charter schools generally that disparity is even bigger. Further research shows more than half of suspensions at charter schools are for so-called nonviolent offenses, such as dress code violations. All this leads some researchers and civil rights advocates to suggest dress codes are not only methods of enforcing school rules, but ways to also police and criminalize black Identity. So let's first start with the case of Maya and Deanna Cook, the Cook girls from Boston. What do our teachers think? I mean, I, I have to be honest, when I read this story, I thought, really? In 2017? But it's happened... Multiple multiple times. times. This is not not, an
3: isolated case. And I think for me, that's what angers me the most is that I have seen articles and stories around it happening in South Africa where black girls are told they cannot have their natural hair in their own set in their schools. And so to me, it is very much evidence, um, proof positive that we continue to marginalize and criminalize um, blackness in, in this most natural state. And I think that for me, it's, it's indicative of the need of, one, increasing the number in the representation of people of color on school system boards and, and um, administration, because as I dug into the story, I realized that 40% of the students are people of color. Yet, you look at their- At this uh, school. At this school. Yeah. If you look at their board, though, to best of my research, not one person on their, I think, seven-member board is a person of color. Not one person in on their administrative team is a person of color. And I think that if you don't have those informed voices at the table that can stop that type of um, policy from happening before it's implemented, it, it is a travesty to our kids, and it does continue to criminalize our students. It also brings to mind this notion that they said it was there to stop it um, from inhibiting and distracting education and also not noting the inequity. But I feel like when your punishment is more severe and more distracting than the actual infraction, that is problematic as well. And I think we can't just take policies for face value and really look at how that impacts students, particularly 16-year-old uh, students, where they're still understanding their identity and still forming their self-esteem. And so when we continue to criminalize the most um, innate parts of who we are as people, then it,
1: it is very problematic. Yeah. Uh- Good points. We want to get back to, uh, but first, let's bring in Greg and Rebecca. Your thoughts were Were you surprised, or just your, your gut reactions to this story?
0: Yeah, I just suspension. Uh, going back to to the suspension being like the go to tool for administrators to use in in such cases, and it does seem really harsh. And I mean, not just for for dress code violations. Um, you know, we know that suspensions, like you said, uh, Bakari, are, are high among um, people of color, students of color, and. I, I just I wonder, like, why is that? I mean, what what are we trying to teach the kids? It, it seems really backward in a way. Alternatives. then. Yeah. so,
1: I mean, if you don't wanna to go to suspensions um, for a violation of the school rules, as it's laid out, technically speaking, mm-hmm. what would be what would have been the recourse?
0: Right. Um, there's always like the in-school suspension model or finding ways to um, restore what what whatever it was that was harmed. I mean, if, if it was a, a question of, like, dress code that wasn't hair, like if it's an actual just an article of clothing, why not just change the article of clothing and, and move on? Uh, it just I'm, I just wonder, what are we trying to teach our kids? What do they learn from being suspended? That either, A, hey, if I goof off or if I wear this, then I don't have to go to school, or two, um, you know, what are they going to really learn by being suspended? It just it's, it doesn't seem like a very educational way of actually teaching students how to be adults. I think it it makes
3: me question as a society, as a system, as a school system, what are we actually teaching our students? And and when we said dress codes, and I'm not uh, against dress codes in public schools by any means. I mean, my school has uniforms. Many of our district schools have uniforms. I'm not against uniforms. I think when we get to the point where we start policing hair to the extent, like I get if it was distracting and that sort of thing, but this is just a, a traditional hairstyle that many black women wear. And I think that they
1: just didn't take into account the cultural relevance. The significance of right. hair. Well, here's the actual policy as it's written for hair and makeup as well for Mystic Valley Charter School. Quote, students must keep their hair neat and out of their eyes. Students may not wear drastic or unnatural hair colors or styles such as shaved lines or shaved sides or have a hairstyle that could be distracting to other students. Extra long hair or hair more than two inches inches in thickness or height is not allowed. This means no coloring, dyeing, lightening, or streaking of any sort. Hair extensions are not allowed. It is in the handbook. It goes on to say that this policy is designed to permit students to focus their attention on academics and on those aspects of their personalities that are truly important. Still, I would say with that wording, the way you do your hair, especially if it's I don't know, and Bakari, you can sp- maybe you can speak. But be- I mean, certainly you can't speak better than I can mm-hmm. about the, the 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 relevance or the the things the, the things and thoughts that go into black hair. Mm-hmm. But for you know the aspects of their personalities that are truly important. It seems like for these girls, it was truly
3: important. That, I mean, I, and not <laughs> that's even that's not even just a black language. thing. Like hair is important <laughs> to many people, and I think that it is extremely important, particularly to black women and black men, because again, society has media, particularly has. Um, Marginalize our hairstyles. And so the fact that we have relegated shelves in a a shopping center for our shopping store to see our products that actually work with our hair. It's like, so I think that when I read policies like this and I hear that it's one, this whole like notion of like, can't be two inches thick or higher than two inches. Like, Whose hair actually grows that way? It's like it's already targeting a certain type of student. Because if I pick my hair out, my hair will be over two inches and I would be in violation of that school policy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it is, it feels very targeted. It feels like it's a continuation of this of this notion that black people have to assimilate to these white norms and like and, and to fulfill these Eurocentric standards of beauty. And that's what it ultimately becomes, a larger conversation of what do we classify as beauty, what do we classify as professional? And it often does not reflect Um, people of color,
1: particularly black people's natural states. Uh, For all the teachers at the table, and thank you, by the way, for saying hair matters to everyone, (laughs) Um, for all the teachers at the table, I guess, how would you critique your own school's dress codes? I mean, like, what are you looking at in your own school's dress codes now um, with a critical eye that you know maybe before this story broke or other stories like it, maybe that you weren't looking at. How would you take the critical lens to your own school's dress codes
0: now? Yeah, in some ways you're asking the the wrong teacher here because we we do have a, a dress code policy, and I am horrible, horrible, horrible <laughs> at enforcing it. Because honestly, like I'm so focused on my lesson plan, you know what what needs to be done in class that when kids come in, you know I'm I'm focusing on other things, and so I am terrible. Uh, and I know other teachers are, are in the same boat out there, and, and bless you all, and I'm sorry for th- all the admin that I cause headaches for, because like a, a, a kid could be totally like wearing jeggings, and I have no idea, and I don't even notice it at all, because I'm in the middle of teaching. I, I mean, the I gotta take
2: the opposing view, guys. Sorry. Uh-oh. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna yeah. shout Go from the other end of the spectrum, just so we can draw the table. Um, and I'll be the first to say that I'm not a typical perspective, alternative school teacher, elementary teacher. Um, but I'm going to make a face at you, Greg, down the hall, if mm. your kid comes to me for the next class and you've <laughs> let him get through the, through his hour. And, and I totally apologize um, that's, for that. I'm, and I have the one that's, I'm the one that's going to snark at you. But um, I, I think ultimately, I mean, we're all saying the same thing, but it has to be a conversation that happens at the site, and it has to be a conversation that includes all the stakeholders. You've got to mm-hmm. have the kids involved in that conversation about what is our standard going to be? Is it equitably? arrived at and is it equitably enforced so, just to be clear is, so
1: you yours your school has a dress code you enforce it
2: absolutely and it does eliminate so many distractions when it isn't because we do enforce it consistently and we've agreed that as a staff we've agreed that in partnership with the students um, it doesn't involve you know, it doesn't involve consistent. hair
1: or have you never had, have you ever had a conversation about hair I have yes. actually
2: yeah. um, at, a couple times at the elementary level and Ironically or not, um, it was with white students. And what was the violation? And they were. Uh, we had a couple kids that, that have come in a couple times to my class um, for spirit week, and they've gone spiked up with big colors or they've gone decorations and, and things that are significant distractions because that's what I spent my morning talking about <laughs> was his hair and why that was not going to be okay. And then I spent a significant part of the day talking with his mother why that's not okay. And the, um, because we had agreed to some some guidelines and, and we've got to apply the guidelines.
1: Um, he didn't get suspended.
2: He went home for the day and came back. <laughs> okay. We in, we enforced. You know, we I think we, that's a uh, good we example, met, though. We met our agreement and and it was, then he came back the ne- later was, in the day or the was next in day. School that day. Oh, okay. He came know, back yeah. the same day. But I I think if if these guidelines and we agree if or not agree that we need to have them. Are in place, then we all agree to support them. But the the critical part is, what are we saying is commonality? Who is who is targeted? Who is not targeted? It has to be arrived.
1: So there's something about this policy, as well as you know, you read other stories um, about other uh, black children getting suspended or punished for their hair, and you read the 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 dress code policies for the schools. Like for instance, um, at a school in Ohio. where a girl was suspended, that the policy was no afro puffs and mm-hmm. tiny twisted braids. At a school in Louisville, Kentucky, um, the actual the daughter of a state legislator in Kentucky actually got suspended, um, and it made news. Um, and the school policy was no dreadlocks, corn rolls, or twists. I think they meant corn rows. Corn rolls makes me hungry. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, in, in a lot of these policies, it seems like it is a very targeted. And uh, doesn't
2: that just illustrate the ignorance that I mean? Just, and, 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 I, and I wonder that, and I, the, the lack of knowledge. Well, I, wonder, I, don't think we, I don't think it's. I think ignorance. I think it's not very intentional. Have the voca- I think it's the intent very intentional. is intentional, but to not even know the vocabulary. Well, that and I would say this,
1: and I, and I would ask this question. I don't. I don't know if. I mean, the, the policies in practice are racist. The people writing the policies, I don't know if they. Th- I think they. I think there's just this ingrained belief. Um, especially among white people that hairstyles like dreadlocks and cornrows just don't they're not quote professional they don't look good um, unless they're on a white person
0: institutional it's what Bakari was saying is what Bakari was saying earlier that uh, when we think or uh, we as in as in maybe like the majority white uh, population didn't think of what makes a good student in your mind's eye you, you think of what a role model student looks like it it You know how much of that tends to be a white student, and so then what? Same with same. And so, I mean, that brings up a bigger issue,
1: and then so what? How do you get over that?
3: I mean, it's called. So, I mean, culture, being culturally responsive, being culturally competent, and asking questions, bringing multiple stakeholders when these type of policies are being written, so that you have an inclusive voice. And I mean, that's what it really boils down to. That we all want what's. Well, most of us want what's best for all of our students. And so, I think if you're not bringing those stakeholders to the table as well that represents those students, and bringing those students to the table, then you're not going to get there. And this feels very, again, targeted because in society we have. We have classified a certain type of person as professional, as the standard of beauty, and it's often reflective of Eurocentric values, and it doesn't include many people of color. And so until we bring those stakeholders to the table, then those, these type of policies are going to continue to exist. And I'm glad that we are in an age where people are starting to get bring awareness around it, but also challenge them very vocally.
1: Well, it's an interesting story, and as far as it's been reported, Mystic Valley has no, has made no moves to at least indicate that they're going to change their dress code around hair. Um, They did say they were going to cease enforcement um, at the end of last school year. Of course, this next school year is about to begin. um, And at least from what I've seen reported so far, um, there's no changes coming. So an interesting story to continue to follow. And as we've pointed out in this conversation, it's happened multiple times, not just at this school, uh, multiple times recently all across the country. Um, So... Um, keep your eye on that. Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at tfakc. Well, we're starting a new regular segment. Uh, we're calling The Betsy Breakdown. The Betsy Breakdown, in which we recap and discuss some notable things said or done in the previous week by Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos and involving the Federal Department of Education. This week, we want to highlight a few things. First, DeVos gave a fiery speech in Colorado to the annual gathering of the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, Alec, if you don't know, is a powerful, if oftentimes obscure, nonprofit backed by corporate interests that aims to bring together policy experts and state legislators to write model state legislation. Alec has been linked to laws that deal with so-called sanctuary cities and gun rights, stand-your-ground laws, and abortion. Educationally, the group is a proponent of vouchers in school choice and virtual schools. In Colorado this past week, DeVos addressed the ALEC gathering, even as protesters gathered outside. DeVos, in her speech, accused the American Federation of Teachers, one of the largest teachers unions in the country, of, quote, caring more about the system, one that was created in the 1800s, than about individual students, unquote. That was in response to a critical tweet in which the AFT said America should not invest in individual students, but in a great public school system overall. She went on to call the protesters outside defenders of the status quo and lauded the members of ALEC inside as those who represent real change. We should note, as many other media did, DeVos and her family have longstanding financial ties to the group ALEC, having contributed to the organization over the years. Well... What do you make of Betsy DeVos' comments this week? It's a little bit more strident than she's been recently. She got really um, criticized when she first came into her position, and it seemed like maybe she was laying low for a while, but this was she came out really, really hard this week. It, it reminds me of, like, when
3: you get your yes-men around you and you get really confident and you get pumped up, and so you can speak as boldly and as bravely as you want to because you know everyone in the room agrees with you, or most of everyone in the room agrees with you, and I think that's,
1: Uh, And And she was speaking to her. I mean, she was speaking speaking to to her 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 constituents. That's who she represents. So I think I'm not surprised by it. What about this rhetorical? And I don't know if I'd heard it from her before, maybe in different words, but this rhetorical strategy of casting herself and... um, you know, the Alec group and other people, her ideological allies as breakers of the status quo and teachers and teachers unions as the status quo.
2: They they are calling themselves disruptors. That's her 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 title on Twitter. I'm sorry to say it. I mean, labels her bio. She labels herself as a disruptor. She wears that proudly. Um, And I think it's it's if you're going to get into the semantics of it. Yes. Teachers' unions are going to defend a successful system that is important to the structure of our society. That doesn't mean that we don't recognize the needs of individual students and the success that they have to have. Greg,
0: yeah, the, the disruptor theme, it goes back to really what the theme of the Trump administration is exactly. in a lot of ways. It's, it's we are the outsiders. Um, and, and I kind of see Betsy DeVos in that way that really she's there not not to really lead education, but really to tear down education. At least from like having a national um, federal platform, yeah, right. like a national platform, a national plan, and leaving it up to I believe well, I believe the, this, I believe the Silicon Valley term is creative destruction. Yeah, creative, creative but destruction. But it, it's, Let's not normalize that. Yeah. I mean, that's it, not okay. It, it's it's going back <laughs> to that old and and this is a very um, conservative viewpoint. You could even tie it back to the old states' rights pre-Civil War era of, of, hey, let the states do their own thing, and, and, and it's okay, ignoring the fact that uh, different states have different standards, have different wealth. Well, she's been very explicit these. about that, oh, devo- devolving yeah. power to the mm-hmm. states, for yeah, sure, and, L- localities. And, and again, the problem with that, and this is, this is the problem we all have, is that because that, we won't have a national platform. A lot of these problems of inequity are too big for states to be able to handle.
3: Well, no, and I mean, and being very frank, I mean, given understanding of where this na- this notion of states' rights comes from and what it meant when it was um, prominent is that it means that those marginalized communities will stay marginalized and become even more oppressed as time goes on. And that we know that in American history, the federal government has been the most progressive in, in getting... And moving the, notion, and the needle for civil rights. Right. And if we left that up to the states, then we would still be in a very different – we would be in a very different time.
2: She's talking out of both sides of her face. As much as she's saying hands off for federal government, she's rejecting all of the ESSA applications that are coming from the states because mm-hmm. she's sending them all back. Um, the states made their individual plans. They're ready to move forward on their own. And she, her department is now technicalities rejected them. Oftentimes as well. Sometimes on ridiculous, Format, on ridiculous reasons. She's margins. Made, she's maintaining an incredible amount of, of micromanagement and control mm-hmm. while saying in public she is not.
1: Well, continuing on with our Betsy breakdown next, Democratic Attorneys General from 20 states have now sent a letter to DeVos asking her and the Department of Education to not roll back Obama-era guidelines governing alleged cases of sexual assault on college campuses. DeVos says the DOE is reviewing those guidelines. She also recently met with sexual assault victims and separately with those accused of sexual assault. More controversially, the head of the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights Said rather blithely, 90% of sexual assault cases fall into the category of what she termed, quote, we were both drunk. That official has since apologized, and Betsy DeVos has come to her defense and tried to walk her statements back. Still, it angered many victims' rights advocates, understandably. But there is no doubt the guidelines on sexual assault issued by the Obama administration in 2011 were controversial. The guidelines pushed colleges to investigate sexual assault more aggressively under the auspices of federal Title IX law and also lower the burden of proof that investigators of campus sexual assault use during disciplinary proceedings. Some critics of this approach including faculty at Harvard Law School, say the guidelines adopted by many prominent universities, including their own, go too far and do not give the accused due process. There are also worries that many college officials now put in charge of investigating alleged instances of sexual assault lack proper legal training to do a thorough enough job. This is an issue that clearly touches upon colleges more, post-secondary education as opposed to K-12, which is the field you all work in. Still, I wonder, um, does this topic do these issues... Um, into your um, your work, your mind? Do they worry you? Do you
2: follow them? It does for me, um, even as a person who spends her day with, with kindergartner through fifth graders. Um, I don't spend a great deal of time during my academic day talking about sexual assault with my group of kids. However, it is a significant issue, K-12. These events happen in high schools. They happen in middle schools. Um, and they happen in our elementary schools. And the Harvard um, administration, I think, is, is on solid ground when they say that we are not trained to do these investigations. And I would and say it should, y- be, it should be done with full due process, and it should be done correctly. And that's why law enforcement recommends leaving these kinds of regulations in place, so they can do those investigations. Right. And before we had that that guidance from the Department of Education, they could not. Greg, you want to say yeah, something? Yeah,
0: it's it's incredibly tr- troubling, not just. Um, In terms of in in the field of education, just as a society in general, uh, that it seems like we're marginalizing, again, the victims, and how much um, disempowering is that when when you hear somebody say that, oh, well, you know, they were just drunk, Um, they were both drunk, that you get a sense of like almost the victim blaming, and then why would a, a victim then come out? It it seems like it's it's just tamping down on that, on 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 hushing victims. of so it, victim, yeah. yeah. I, oh,
3: I, I mean, so I sorry. just <laughs> I just feel like I I struggle with having like real conversations about DeVos and just the Trump administration at whole because like we know what their intentions are and we know what their motives are, and it just this is just more proof positive to that. And I I, I mean. I don't know. We can't change their mindsets on these things and that they don't want to be changed. They're not interested in changing. They're interested to pushing their agenda. And I don't want to sound like hopeless. I'm not hopeless. But I just have little faith in what's possible with them because they are very intentional about what they're doing. And, and, and while it may sound ignorant um, or their comments may sound ignorant and just... Um, not aware. I feel like its they're very aware and they're not dumb people. They're not stupid people. This is a very intentional administration. As much as we want to just um, brush it off as ignorance, it's not. And I think that I just—I struggle with arguing and debating ignorance.
1: Well, that was the Betsy Breakdown. I don't know if is going to be coming back to the Betsy Breakdown. <laughs> We're really need She's trying to break
3: down the education system. We're going to need
2: music. Yeah. We need the right music.
1: We'll check in, if not weekly, then semi-regularly about what's going on in the Federal Department of Education. The next topic, a new Gallup poll shows 57% of Americans have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in police in America that comes after confidence in law enforcement declined in both 2014 and 2015, dropping to a low of 52%. The Gallup results this year put confidence in police back in line with historical averages over the past 25 years that the Gallup organization has conducted this poll. Still, there are some interesting and Telling disparities in the survey, as the researchers put it, the overall rise in confidence masks a drop in confidence among Latinos, liberals and young adults. Between 2012 and this year, confidence in law enforcement among Latinos dropped from 59 percent to 45 percent. Among self-identified liberals, it dropped from 51 to 39 percent. And in Americans ages 18 to 34, it dropped from 56 to 44 percent. In that same time frame, 2012 to 2017, the overall confidence in police remained relatively static, 55 percent to 54 percent. Also interesting to note, by 2017, the gap between self-identified Democrats and Republicans who said they had confidence in the police was 44 percent compared to 69 percent, respectively. This is the Gallup poll's conclusion, in part, quote, a closer look at the survey reveals a troubling loss of confidence among key groups in U.S. society. Police already meet uh, police already must deal with low levels of trust among blacks and a similar situation may be occurring among Hispanics. The lack of confidence among younger Americans could presage a growing loss of respect for police in the future. The continuing drop in confidence among liberals is already producing political repercussions, end quote. Uh, so you're teachers of young people, not quite 18 yet, but you are in schools. I, I wonder what are your students' relationships to police outside of school. And we have talked before in this program about school resource officers, but specifically now this conversation about police outside of school, their interactions with law enforcement beyond the school walls. What do you hear? I I think it's important to put a bit more
3: context as well on this um, Gallup poll and and just the headline that increased um, confidence in police because, like, whose confidence actually increased? And what it became, I mean, after looking well, at but it... Well, someone has
1: to balance those numbers out, right? Right. So that's white, <laughs> liberal,
3: our white, conservative, moderate to conservative Republicans, 55 and older, mm-hmm. who actually increased their confidence in the police. And so I feel like just that, that needed to be named because that provides a bit more context. I was, was
2: interested in the poll as well and went and looked at some of the other factors. I mean, it was interesting to see that the things that stayed flat... Um, the military mm-hmm. and big business, and the ones that fell, organized religion, um, labor, confidence in police. Well, but I was, it, it was a, it's an interesting grouping of topics. Mm-hmm. I think that we could dig into at some point. I think That's I not was what even more we're here to do, but it was an interesting look at it. that
3: um, we have more confidence in police officers than we do in our public schools, which was just very interesting to me.
2: I agree. I agree. No, um, what do
3: you
1: think that says? The, <laughs> what?
2: Well, and the criminal justice state yeah, flat. that's so. Yeah, that's the criminal evidence. justice like, state flat. We trust police officers, police, but we don't
3: trust the criminal justice system. To me, they're one and the same. Mm-hmm. The court um, system stayed high, which criminal, makes me wonder: it, like, what do, mm-hmm. people took this poll? Like, what do they? What do they think that police officers are actually doing? Um, but I mean, to the public school piece, I mean, it, it speaks to this criminalization. I think when we think about public schools in America, we think about black and brown children, because that's often the poster child, even though we are not the majority in public schools right now, because we're not the majority in this country, but that's the poster children for public schools. And so I think that like there's an association with public school, the imagery is black and brown, so they must not be doing good things for black and brown kids, yet Because we have been conditioned to criminalize black and brown people, oh, police officers are doing their job because on my news, I see black and brown people getting shot and killed and locked up. So it all makes sense.
0: Hmm.
2: There's so many different lenses, and I'm thinking of it from a little person lens because my my people are little people. Um, We have a, you know, they still have the conversation, the elementary conversation, this is what I want to be. That this is something to aspire to. They still want to be. They still that want to be a police officer. My little boys, my little girls, they want to be doctors, nurses, firefighters, police officers. Um, those conversations stay consistent year after year. The conversations they have about what they see on TV and what they see in movies is different than that. And the conversation that they have, how they have to be at home when they live in the apartment, and the police officer police officer comes to the door. Is very different, so there's there's this what uh, what, what changes then? So when they are when, when, th-
1: when they're in your class and you, you teach you know elementary school kids mm-hmm. and they still want to be police officers. Um, does something change as they grow older? I mean, yes. it does. B- it does. Bacara, and we, you teach middle it, school. You know they when it po- They want to be police officers. Happens. Not a yeah. not one that I can recall. Right. And
3: um, I mean, even when I taught elementary, I don't ever remember any of my students wanting to be police officers. Um, and I've mm-hmm. taught predominantly Black children at the middle school. We have a pretty good mix of uh, predominantly Hispanic and Black. Um, and I had I can't recall any of them ever. Do you, you ever dig into those attitudes? Interface. I mean, I mean, of course. Mm-hmm. So we have conversations, particularly. It, it, the difficulty is that we often only have these conversations in the aftermath of some travesty or tragedy. and so um, when we see like these shootings of black, black and brown men at the hands of police officers, that often fuels this notion that they, that's not something they want to be associated with. that's not they don't see police officers as allies. They don't see police officers as a friendly um, occupation and in in, and so I think that, that that those type of tragedies often fuel the mindsets of our students and that, I mean, if you see that every time you've interacted with a police officer or every time that someone you know has interacted with a police officer has always been negative, that's not something you want to aspire to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Greg, you teach at a a largely Latino school.
0: Yeah, um, but I want to take a step back and, and outside of that and just think, get outside of the inner city for just a second, thinking even for myself growing up in the suburbs, there was still in in the in the 90s. This is there was still a resistance as a teenager to the cops, and I still think it's it's maybe part of just teenagerhood, uh, adolescence that that you have this this antagonism toward authority figures, and what mm-hmm. bigger authority figure outside of your parents than the cops, especially when Teachers. you get a car, when you get your <laughs> when you yeah, when you get your driver's license, and you know. If you get pulled over, whose fault is it? It's not your fault, obviously. It's 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 um, the cops. I mean, this is the attitude that that my I'm just this is the attitude that I saw a lot growing up in in very suburban school that I saw, and you know, so you have that already, and then on top of that, everything else. I would you agree
3: know? to the extent that motivations for a distrust or a dislike for police officers varies, but. That definitely is not nor- the norm for people of color because we're getting pulled
1: over not just because we're young but because we're black. Well, so Greg, so to compare the, the, the attitude and feelings you and your friends had when you were growing mm-hmm. up in the suburbs, as you said, to, to the students you teach now.
0: Right. The, the big difference, and this is what we're getting at, right, the big difference is um, if we got pulled over, there was never a fear that we were going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. There was never a fear that any harm was going to come to us. The only harm was going to be financial or a butt kicking from our parents mm-hmm. when they, we get a $200 fine. The, the danger now that, that my kids feel is, oh, my God, I'm going to get deported or my family is going to get deported if I get pulled over. That's – and that that – well, and even bigger, just the motivation bigger, of why yeah. we're getting
3: pulled over. So, like, there's that multiple layers of questioning. Whereas mm-hmm. when I hear you talk about your experience, that there was this adolescence attitude of "I didn't do anything wrong. I'm just getting pulled over." Whereas when it comes to people of color, there's also this layer of like, mm-hmm. "Did I actually do something wrong? Am I just getting pulled over because, because of the way I look?" Sure. And then what does that do once I actually get pulled over? Right. What type of dangers that put me in? So right. I think those well, layers.
1: And one of the single, in terms of all the demographic groups survey, one of the single biggest drops was. Uh, among Latinos, um, and I and I wonder how much of it mm-hmm. is the, the larger conversation related very much to the Trump administration's policies about um, immigration enforcement and, and uh, stepped yeah. up deportation. You, you sure just it's it's,
0: it. it's just a, a lot of fear. I mean, because that you don't know if if and and part of it is just not knowing the system and and who's ICE, who's not the local cops, and and it's much easier for people to just. Uh, Group them you are, need to yeah. group them all together, um, just to say, hey, you know, they're they're law enforcement. I need to stay away from them, not talk to them. Um, I shouldn't trust them. And then on top of that, you you see everything that's been going on: Philando Castile, so on and so forth. And and you, there's there's very real fear with them. So
1: I wonder, as as teachers, then, what do you see as your role and or your responsibility um, for um, whenever it comes up or when it is naturally part of the curriculum to talk about uh, police and law enforcement. Um, how do you do it?
0: Do you, I, I don't know. I, I just, yeah. yeah. I'll, gonna, I'll, gonna, leave, I'll leave the, the, the question there. The to... answer from the others, from Rebecca and Bacari, because yeah. usually, I, I, I try to have a police officer come in and talk to my students at least once a year My go- because I teach American government. Um, and so there's a, a wealth of topics we could touch on when we talk about like Fourth uh, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment rights. Um, and almost every time I do that, um, and, and the officers that, that I contact to, to come in, um, sometimes they're, they're um, people of color, sometimes they're not. Um, they're still awesome in, in talking to the kids. And just having an actual real person in uniform come in and, and, and hey, you could put a face now with, with this thing. It's not just a uniform, not just a badge. I always end up having at least one student say, you know, I think I want to be a cop do you uhcar, <laughs> you're shaking your head when I get back to you just like
1: when when you have these cops come, in, did you have a cop come in this past spring um
0: no, it was actually in the fall before after before the it was it was before the election, but you're going to do it this fall yeah, yes okay, definitely um interesting, do you think that will change it at all i I'm
1: curious to see my my feelings is probably Bakar, you were shaking your head as, as Greg was talking. I, there's a real, I mean, you personally I have, a, have a real animosity. I, I, I think, do. If that's a fair thing to say. It is. I, well, so as an educator,
3: I, I think it's very important that we teach our children to think critically and not just paint with broad strokes. And so I think for me, what I have done is be very intentional about disarming like individuals and like knowing, naming the fact being, teaching my students to separate institutions and systems from individuals, and un- but also understanding the impact of systems and institutions on individual choices. And so to this notion around like bringing in a police officer, I think that's great at the same time, I feel like it. If we do that only, and we don't talk about the institution and the system, and that's what I'm shaking my head at. I feel like when I see these videos on social media of the nice cop who's in the hood and who's giving out ice cream cones and who's who's dancing with key, it's like that's an individual, but that's not that doesn't talk about. The or system. hugging the protesters. Exactly, and so like, and even like that Pepsi commercial. Let's give everyone a. a oh, no, let's not like, talk about what? that. What? No. Like that. And so I, I think that. It has to be a both end. Yes, it's it's important that our students understand that all cops are not bad cops and that there's a system there that could work for our advantage, but it's also just as important that they understand that that system is not working to our advantage, and these people who are representations of that system have often made poor poor choices and and bad judgment when it comes to people who look like us. Mm -hmm. While they're not all going to do that, some of them will, and you need to be aware of that.
1: But to to push,
3: it it seems like you would even balk at at even bringing in a police officer. No, (laughs) I— If we have not had the systems and institutions conversation, then yes. I just think that when we too often we stop there because that's the easy piece. Oh, you don't like cops? Let me bring in a friendly cop. But that doesn't that doesn't actually change anything for my students. And I think about that's the point I want to. Then also it's like, what type of conversation are we having with police officers? Yeah, they can come talk to us, but are we going to go talk to them as well? And I think that's the piece. There has to be more community around how we are policing our communities. So it
2: comes back around again, as you said earlier, Picard, supporting um a system, but not the status quo. Mm-hmm. And it, it same kind of philosophy well, there. T- it, This has been a difficult conversation for me because my students aren't in danger, and yours are. So I feel... Would you say, they, I mean, but would you say I, your students are in day danger? On a day-to-day basis... Why don't you think student, they're in danger? I, and let me, be more, let me be more precise. My students are not getting pulled over. They're not getting pulled off the street. My students are... That's That's not part of their experience yet.
3: But their parents okay. are. Their, their parents siblings are, are, their
2: brothers and sisters are, their neighbors are. That's happening. They see that. But it's a different it really is a different day to day than what you have for you. Hour, second say that, I mean, third and, hour.
1: and you see that in the and the enthusiasm sometimes that if you I hear from your students just, about wanting to be a law enforcement you know, the, officer
2: or, just in the books that we read, in the stories we tell, in the conversations right, that we the have, the way we
3: condition students. The
2: way we condition. I'm selling them a story, and I'm sitting here hearing it, and I'm, I don't know a response yet, hmm. but the 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 actual getting them home safely at the end of the day, peril, is not. Well, see, I guess th- I it's would a different argue. Level, I
3: would I would argue, and that I that
2: I haven't found my place in there. It yet. is a
3: different level because they're not necessarily
1: immediate danger.
3: Yes, if you will. Yes, and I, um, I but said if I, it badly,
2: if,
1: but okay. I, I, Please no. understand my yeah. point, not my words. Okay. But I, I said it bad. Well, so it's interesting yeah. to me as listening to you talk, so because you're processing this as you're as you're saying it. So I, um, I definitely get that. I wonder. So it sounds like you are cognizant of the fact that you are. Because you even use the term conditioning, right? You like you are aware that you are you are telling them a story.
2: I am teaching these things in the same way that I have for years. Yeah. And, uh, and is that, that changing? Are, that are you changing? Are your that personal
1: feelings about oh, So you're saying that the way that you feel about it and the way that you teach it needs to change.
2: It does. I would it does, because the realities that my students are living in now are different than they were mm-hmm. when I started 27 years ago. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and is that I wonder what, what does that feel like? What is that as an educator? What are you what are you thinking about in terms oh, of? Oh, it's
2: just one more level of inadequacy. Thank you for letting me have something else to worry about now um, because this is a fundamental life and death issue of the, the world that they live in. And, you know, where does multiplication fall in relationship to that?
3: Thinking more about this conversation and like, thinking about what Greg was saying and then and like my shaking of my head and such I just think that what it feels like is that we are continuing to condition students to believe in cops but we're not conditioning cops to believe in those same students that they end up ultimately mm-hmm. becoming those adults and that's to me that tension that I feel when I hear these type of conversations or when I see cops being brought in it's like yeah we want you to play nice with us but they're not playing nice we want you to play
1: nice with them but they're
3: not playing nice with us type of thing
1: like we're having the difficult conversation right, right. now and you, right you want people involved in law enforcement to have that same difficult conversation. Exactly. Well, good conversation. uh, Difficult as it was at times. Great conversation. We'll end this show not with kids these days. We normally do that, but it is still summer and our teachers haven't been teaching kids, so they don't they're not up-to-date, let's say, on the latest kid trends. They take a break. They take a break. <laughs> and yes.
3: Although it is almost that time
1: to start downloading all the things that they consumed over the summer. Almost like a, like a Matrix. Get the, <laughs> exactly. Get the thing stuck in the back of your head. Download teen pop culture. Um, so we'll end with a different question, a different uh, quick kind of fun topic to end the show with. This is inspired in part by the release of the new movie Dunkirk, about the mass evacuation of hundreds of thousands of British troops penned in by German forces along the French coast in 1940. See, I said this this is going to be a fun a fun way to end the real, show. Real barn <laughs> burner. The movie has received advanced praise from the likes of the New York Times. It calls it this, a cinematic tour de force. Uh, it's also been noted for bringing to modern attention, at least, a historical event that, especially for many Americans, not so much in the U.K., was previously obscure. In fact, the director, Christopher Nolan, has said the fact that nobody had made a movie about Dunkirk before intrigued him and inspired him to make this movie. So that prompts me to thank... Teachers often use movies, especially movies based on historical events, to help teach a concept or topic or get through a day right before vacation. Uh, I think about watching watching (laughs) scenes from, uh, let's say, you know, when I was in high school, I watched scenes from the movie Glory to learn about the Civil War. When I was a a teacher, I showed uh, the movie The Boy in the Striped Pajamas Mm -hmm. to teach about the Holocaust. So now that Dunkirk has been taken, what previously obscure or lesser covered historical event, period, or historical figure would you like to see a movie about? Rebecca.
2: I think the most obvious one that we just have to have happen quickly is the movie for Hamilton. because Oh, you that want that is, to be made into a movie. That yeah. is, and don't be shaking your head at me, <laughs>
3: <laughs> gentlemen, Not at you at the idea.
2: I get it, but that one, the, the interest in Founding Fathers, we haven't ever had a good revolutionary movie. We've had, uh, sorry, Mel Gibson, Patriot was not great. Um, you know, we d- haven't had a founding father's movie, founding mother's movie um, mm. that looks at it the way we should. Bakari.
3: So I have a whole list of things that I, <laughs> that I think are noteworthy enough for movies. Um, I think about like the 1985 bombing in Philadelphia that was done by police officers um, mm-hmm. that resulted in 11 deaths. Five of them were children. I think about the 1921 race riots in Tulsa and Black Wall Street would be a great opportunity to... Um, Your hometown, Yeah. Yep. Um, I think about a lesser-known Second Congo War where over 5 million people were killed, and they often call it the African World War. Um, The Berlin Conference, where... All the white allies came together and said, we're going to split up Africa. And they did the great run for Africa. And I think that would be That'd quite be a, a movie to, to be made. I think a movie about King Leopold's impact in, Ga- mm-hmm. in the Congo, where over estimated 10 to 13 million people lost their lives under his rule from 19, 1885 to 1908. So I think those are all great opportunities to really talk about little-known history that really impacted a large portion of our world and how we operate as a society today. Great list, well, by the way, Bakari. Greg, you're a
1: history teacher <laughs>
0: Yeah. So this, this question kind of blew my mind and I actually <laughs> had to ask for, for some guidance. So I, I got one and, and shout out to my wife because she, she came up with this first. Uh, would love to see a movie um, set in East Asia that doesn't involve a white savior. Um, you know, some something like Genghis Khan would be fantastic. That would just be that would that would be awesome. Or even or even Japan uh, without uh, Tom Cruise would be would be good. <laughs> well, that will do it for this episode of
1: No Wrong Answers. We should say Teach for America, Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast, but No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control. What our teachers say. And the movies they recommend are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for or the movies their principals would recommend. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week, Rebecca McIntosh, Greg Brenner, Bakari Ukuu, Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodapp, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio. That's where we tape. And we should say we're taking a two-week break, and we'll come back in mid-August, right, for the start of the next school year for what amounts to our Season 2 here at No Wrong Answers. Got some exciting developments and announcements to tell you then. So tune back in in just a couple of weeks. I'm Kyle Palmer. Remember, kids, for the rest of the summer and into the new school year, be nice to your teachers.